Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor provides some ideas for making it through the long, cold winter of a pandemic. It's important to connect, and COVID has made it difficult, but maintaining social connectivity, that's really important in overcoming seasonal affective disorder. A mother-daughter team talks about the book they wrote together about viral pandemics. If you understand the virus that you're dealing with, you have so much better chance of controlling the pandemic. And a vision researcher explains her work on retinal regeneration and gene therapy. At least in an animal model, we can regrow an optic nerve, which is very exciting. Our biggest focus is, can we enhance that regrowth so that it can make connections with the brain? All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear from a physician and medical historian who teamed up together to write a book about viral pandemics. Then a vision researcher explains her work on retinal regeneration and gene therapy. But first, Dr. Koshal Nanavati is here with some suggestions for surviving the long, cold pandemic winter. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you live in central New York, you live in four distinct seasons. Winter may be your favorite, but even if it is, the dark, cold days may get to you sometimes, and especially this year. Here to talk with me about the winter blues is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy, and he's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati. Glad to be back. I know some people experience a seasonal depression called seasonal affective disorder, and I wonder if that's combined with a depressive episode that's brought on by pandemic isolation, is that likely to make the depression even worse? We're seeing higher numbers of people being depressed, uh, and both have a role to play, uh, especially because seasonal affective disorder, especially in a place like uh, central New York, uh, where we have longer winters, uh, it's been known to be uh, consistent. Uh, when the winter sets in and kind of, you know, end of fall, winter time, uh, for people that have it, it comes annually around the same time of the year. Uh, and then this year, the confounder being COVID-19 and the impact that that's had. So for some people who have seasonal affective disorder, what's happened is they've kind of felt the depression anyway, depending on their life circumstances. And then on top of that, they have, you know, darker uh, longer evenings and nights, uh, colder weather. I just saw, you know, as I woke up this morning, the snow on the ground in central New York. Uh, you know, for people that struggle with that, uh, this definitely heightens uh, the feelings that they get with seasonal affective disorder. So it's likely to affect more people this year. Um, what can we do about it? Well, I think it's very interesting. You know, historically, uh, the things that people have done in general uh, to either combat or overcome depression, uh, we usually tell them the things that they can do in terms of their own personal resources include, you know, everything from what I've talked with you before about in terms of the core four of nutrition and exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness, their own sense of contentment and peace, is really focusing on doing purposeful activities focusing on our meaningful relationships, uh, focusing on, you know, what we want to contribute versus what we want to get so that our, our focus uh, goes away from uh, what we're feeling is a void in our own life to actually recognizing the value that we can bring uh, in the lives of others. And sometimes that alone is very uplifting. Uh, practically speaking, uh, there's a biochemical phenomenon that does happen, uh, especially as we have, you know, uh, shorter uh, exposure to sunlight and longer nights is that the biochemical serotonin in the body can start to go uh, be lower. And serotonin can actually get converted to melatonin as well, 
and melatonin has been known to affect the circadian rhythm, as can serotonin uh, affect our mood. Uh, and so that combination sometimes leads to people feeling more uh, depressed, uh, and seasonal affective disorder is kind of in this continuum uh, or spectrum of depression, uh, depressed mood. So a lot of the symptoms we think about are, you know, difficulty or uh, inadequate sleep or change in sleep patterns, decreased interest in daily activity, feelings of guilt, uh, decreased energy, uh, their mood being affected, uh, people having difficulty concentrating, uh, appetite, uh, you know, changes, uh, and also feeling more clumsy or just feeling off your game, you know? Uh, and some people actually have it severe enough where they may even have thoughts of, you know, self-harm or suicide. Uh, and so this is a real condition. It's not something that's just, oh, just blow it off. It's just because it's, you know, uh, cold or you just got to figure out what to do. It's a real biochemical uh, impact on the body that affects our mood, our ability to act and think and do. Uh, and some people feel, you know, helpless or hopeless or even worthless during this time. And so it's important to connect. And COVID has made it difficult uh, just because of the fundamentals that we keep encouraging people to follow of uh, physical distancing, of, you know, mask wearing and uh, all of these things. Uh, I'm not a big fan, as you know, of social distancing. I think it should be physical distancing, but maintaining social connectivity. Uh, and that's really important in overcoming seasonal affective disorder depression that's tied into COVID-19 or even anxiety. Uh, well, yeah, when you mentioned uh, about, you know, a purpose, um, COVID kind of changes that or challenges us to be creative in, okay, this is sort of the routine we used to follow, you know, last winter before COVID, but it really won't work this year. We have to make some adaptations, it sounds like. I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, when I mentioned the fundamentals, you know, people... Uh, and I think you and I had this discussion off air, the idea of, you know, teenagers versus adults. Uh, and there was a study done uh, between San Diego State and BYU, and they were looking at data from 2018 versus now. And what they found was that teenagers were less depressed than would have been expected. They expected that teens would be much more depressed because, you know, they were kind of locked in, couldn't go out as much, et cetera. But what they found interesting was that teens actually – uh, that had a home environment where there are either two parents or they had an active engagement with family, those teens were actually less depressed, uh, experienced less anxiety compared to uh, teens who either didn't have a great connection at home or households where there was job loss, and we've seen that you know, in much higher numbers in the past. And so the reasoning, the causality, the cause, um, is actually been different compared to what it might be in other years. And people are struggling at home with, you know, figuring out food on the table, you know, the lights on, uh, you know, maintaining, you know, income. And these are real issues in society. Uh, and these are real issues that we have to deal with. Even locally, uh, you know, it's one in six families that are actually struggling to figure out about, you know, getting adequate food on the table for the household. And so when we talk about purpose, when we talk about connectivity, there are many, many ways in which, you know, we as a community can support each other. Uh, and there are many resources in the community that are active and engaged. Yesterday was, you know, the Giving Tuesday. And so, you know, you could see through social media networks the amount that people were willing to contribute to support their neighbors and our community as a whole, that's very heartwarming to know that, you know, at a time of such difficulty and distress that we are able to uh, uplift our own neighbors. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about beating the winter blues. And you mentioned about um, the teenagers, and I was going to ask, you know, some of that might be sort of their attitude or their outlook, and I wonder what adults can learn from teens regarding that. Well, I think, you know, some of the stresses are a little bit different. So teenagers generally aren't as worried about how food gets on the table as much as having it there when they're hungry. But I think for adults, some of the stresses are a little bit different, a little bit unique. 
what we do know, though, is that teenagers uh, commented in the study that they felt as a result of this time during this pandemic, they felt that they were a little more resilient. Uh, and for adults, one of the important things to realize for us is that we're still here, which means we still have an opportunity to build a healthy and happy home. And we start to realize that focusing on the meaningful relationships, the kind to connect, uh, rather than feeling trapped, thinking about it, the opportunity that we can all be together, right? So how we frame this time together uh, actually makes a big difference. And I'm not making light of the situation and stressors that many, many people face in terms of, you know, not having the financial resources to resolve uh, to be able to maintain, you know, the same house they have or the same activity level that they have or the same, uh, you know, resources that they're used to having. But that being said, if we focus on the fundamentals uh, and recognize that through our children, we can actually experience joy uh, through connection and through time shared, through having conversations and dialogue, uh, we can actually build a stronger bond so that when we do come out of this, uh, you know, temporary time frame, uh, we will all be stronger for it and we'll have, you know, healthier relationships as a result. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if we find that our stress is leading to us lashing out uh, at the ones we love, uh, getting more irritable, getting more moody, getting more, you know, chippy, what that does is creates a bigger, uh, you know, kind of divide uh, and strains the relationship more. So we have to recognize that, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, regardless of our personal circumstance, uh, COVID is impacting our entire community. Uh, and so the best thing we can do is focus on our micro sphere within our own home, within our own immediate relations, stick to spending time together in this way versus interconnected and, and socializing and uh, feeling like, yeah, but it won't affect me because honestly, this is something that has a potential effect, you know, a majority of us over time. Uh, and so adults can recognize that, hey, I've got this opportunity, uh, even though it's a challenge, let me make the most of it. Well, I want to tap your expertise on integrative medicine, because I'm thinking that even the strongest person with the most positive mindset is is challenged during these times. Are there some tools from integrative therapy that you can recommend? I think the concept of integrative therapy or complementary along with conventional approaches, the complementary approaches don't just have to be prescriptive. So uh, I just had a talk with our uh, medical students at lunchtime today, and one of them mentioned that they had done a virtual art, um, you know, gathering where they were all at their own homes, uh, but, you know, they all did a painting together. Uh, and that's kind of cool. Uh, people do virtual dance, virtual yoga, virtual meditation, uh, virtual cooking. Uh, in fact, for the holidays, as Thanksgiving just went by, uh, you know, we actually did a little bit of Zooming with relatives over dinner uh, and kind of, you know, shared what everybody was going to be eating and what we were having at the time. Uh, and so there are many, many things we can do to connect with the resources we have. On the personal side, uh, doing the deep breathing or abdominal breathing uh, for mindfulness, taking 10 minutes every morning to set your intention for the day, and taking 10 minutes at nighttime to express gratitude for the day that was, is a great way to reflect on the gifts we have in life uh, versus the challenges we face, right? And so it brings us back to valuing the presence. Um, I, have a, I had a thought this morning uh, which was specifically that if we make each day better than the day before, we can look back on a life well-lived, right? But if we save for tomorrow what we could do today, then, you know, we'll reflect back on a life that's incomplete. And so taking the time to proactively engage in our living experience, making it the best day yet, uh, it's an active process, but now you're engaged in making it happen versus feeling like you're, you know, stuck. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned food. Uh, are, there, are there food sources or vitamins or supplements that are helpful to add to our diet specifically in wintertime? Or, or is there anything that we're deficient in? Yeah, so uh, on a broad scale, uh, you know, the Harvard Health Eating Plate is a great resource. 
evidence guided, but one of the most important things is to add color to your plate, right? Colorful foods help us to feel more invigorated. So with vegetables, you know, having different colors uh, of foods, uh, and vegetables are healthy and they actually help us to feel happier. Uh, so having vegetables, uh, more so than fruit, but vegetables and fruit uh, is a great opportunity to feel invigorated. As far as supplements and vitamins go, um, you know, vitamin D has been associated with depression. So getting back to the beginning of our conversation with seasonal affective disorder, depression, oftentimes we diagnose that and people prescribe medication, but sometimes it's uh, a fix of the vitamin D that can actually help enhance the mood. Uh, Omega-3 in studies has been shown that 3,000 milligrams a day can actually work as effectively for mild to moderate depression uh, and anxiety as do some of the prescribed medications. Now, does that mean it'll work for everybody? No, but it can definitely be a resource and a source of, of benefits. So uh, cold water, freshwater wild-caught fish, walnuts, sunflower and pumpkin seeds, chia and flax seeds, avocado, olive oil are all great sources of omega-3. When you use them in our foods, that can be helpful. So I'll give you a quick uh, trail mix of walnuts and almonds that are unsalted mixed with uh, sunflower and pumpkin seeds that are salted uh, with some raisins and a quarter cup once or twice a day with 8 to 12 ounces of water. Great for your cholesterol, great omega-3 and mood boost, uh, and the hydration helps as well. Oh, that's good advice. Well, before I let you go, um, we started out talking about depression, and I know that this can become, you know, severe in some people, but at what point does a person need to seek professional help? Are there some red flags to be aware of? So uh, starting from the most severe, obviously, if somebody has thoughts of self-harm or suicide, it's really important. Uh, but when people start to feel hopeless or helpless or worthless, or any of those symptoms that I had mentioned earlier, uh, I think it's important to at least speak with their primary care provider uh, and also check in with their family, their friends, uh, because a lot of times what happens in these cases is people do the opposite. They tend to isolate, uh, and they tend to not want to share feeling like they'll be judged. Uh, and the reality is, is that more people in your life will help uplift you. And so rather than trying to hide it, it's important to actually share when we're feeling stressed or distressed uh, and that we can connect better. But anybody who has any thoughts uh, or concern of, of uh, self-harm, uh, suicidal ideation, uh, definitely that's the biggest red flag. Uh, but if you start to notice your sleep is starting to change, you're not interested in the same things or doing the same things, you feel more moody, uh, you know, snapping and getting snippy with people, and that's not your normal self, Definitely reach out uh, to your healthcare provider. Uh, you know, there are hotlines um, for depression as well uh, that can be great resources for people. Uh, and obviously, uh, otherwise, you can even contact uh, Upstate's uh, helpline and they'll be able to help you as well. Well, thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. I'm Amber Smith with Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. We'll look back at pandemics with the authors of a book on that subject next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An experienced physician with a public health background teamed up with her daughter, who's an academic historian of science and medicine, to write a book called Viral Pandemics from Smallpox to COVID-19. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ray Ellen Cavey. She's a pediatric cardiologist who earlier in her career was part of the Upstate faculty, and her daughter, Allison Cavey, who's a professor in the history department at CUNY John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and she's also part of the Graduate Center as well. Welcome both of you to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Thank you and, very much for having us. And since you're both Dr. Cavey, is it okay if I use your first names? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Now, before we talk about the content of the book, I wanted to know how this project began and how it was working together. Ray Ellen? 
Well, the book started with me because when I was newly retired in 2014, the uh, Ebola pandemic was really at its height and they were advertising constantly that they needed physicians to go. So I volunteered to go. And in the two weeks before I was rejected because I was too old, I read up a ton and realized first of, what, of all, what a fascinating subject it was and also how little I knew about viral disease um, in a pandemic sense. So I just got really engaged with it. And even though I never was taken as a volunteer, I stayed engaged and over time that morphed into working with Allison as a um, an adjunct professor at John Jay teaching an undergraduate history course. So the two of us were sort of engaged with this over a couple of years. And then um, my husband said, you know, I think you might have a book here. And that was after many evenings of me going, you know, with yellow fever or during the polio pandemics, I mean, I just was fascinated and really engaged with this material. So that's how it started. Well, it is an interesting book. I, I read through. It's very engaging. Um, so, Allison, what was it like working with your mom on a project like this? How did you get involved? Well, I mean, it's always an honor to be Ray Ellen's daughter. I think for those of us who grew up in Syracuse, it was um, a quite a remarkable thing to be the child, to be the daughter of a woman who was so smart and so accomplished and always so well-respected in her field and certainly a real role model for me. Um, being able to, I guess in a little bit of a sense, teach her some history of medicine was really interesting. I Obviously this is my field. Um, I specialize in Renaissance, but that doesn't mean I haven't taught every uh, iteration of the history of modern medicine that you can imagine. And so it was very interesting to see how we approach this topic differently but in the end, our shared interest in public health, mine from the history of public health and hers obviously from the much more instrumental approach is something that I think we share and certainly that I learned when I was a teenager sitting at the kitchen table doing my homework. So, you know, really wonderful role model and it was an honor and it's always a pleasure to work with mom. Well, on the dedications page, one of the quotes you included uh, was in French from Louis Pasteur and it translated to, Gentlemen, it is the microbes who will have the last word. So what is that quote saying and why did you choose it? That, that was one that I picked. I, um, I came to understand, and I believe this fervently, right up right to the present moment when we're engaged with COVID, that if you understand the virus that you're dealing with, you have so much, so much better chance of controlling the pandemic. And you, I'm sure we've all, we're living through this. So we've seen how knowledge has accrued over time, but in particular, you can just point to the difference in mortality early in the pandemic when doctors were struggling to know the virus and learn what might work to the present time when mortality has fortunately really decreased. But I really think there, there's, there's a nugget of critical information there. Well, it does seem like we're kind of learning as we go because um, we're only a year into this, really. Yeah, um, not even a year, not even a year. So are there things that you think we as a society have learned or maybe that we should have learned from previous viral pandemics that maybe would, you know, help us with this one? Allison, you want to answer that? I know you have strong feelings about this. So one of the most compelling things for me about the history of modern medicine is the success of public health efforts. And there are two big ones that we look at in history of medicine. The first would be vaccination campaigns. That's the hero story of modern medicine, right? Identify the virus, figure out how to vaccinate against it, vaccinate large portions of the population, and then you have immunity. And a good vaccination campaign with follow through will produce significant levels of immunity and we know it's worked it's worked with measles it's worked with polio it's worked with smallpox my other public health message is stuff you can do at home for example wash your hands wear a mask when you're out uh don't go to gatherings i know everybody wants to spend time with their families right now but i'm afraid dr fauci is right we need to sort of stay home and and really spend the time uh, if we can over zoom or something like that 
to demonstrate a commitment to really ending this virus until we have effective vaccination efforts. Um, I would strongly recommend people who are interested in the history of medicine read about the 1918 flu epidemic because the cities that employed effective public health measures against that flu, they kept the numbers down. Look at St. Louis, look at Philadelphia, don't look at New York um, because New York City did a really bad job. So the more effective and complete public health efforts you can have, the more effective any place will be at limiting contagion. So you mentioned the 1918 flu. You have a whole chapter on the 1918 flu, uh, and it's I've heard it compared with the current pandemic. How do you how do you think it compares overall to what we're going through right now? Is it very similar? Well, it's similar in that the virus is mobile. Um, you know, it's transmitted in the air, and it's very easily. Um, infective from person to person. So those are two strong similarities. It's different in many other ways because the influenza virus is mutates constantly. And that was a large part of its presentation and has been a large part of the difficulty in creating the vaccine that Allison alluded to that would help us control it better. COVID so far has not been a rapid mutator. So that hasn't been a big part of the picture. But just to go back for a second, I would say there's a good example of what we learned. We learned about mutation and we learned about mutation in viruses from that influenza pandemic. That's how we found out that viruses mutate the way they do and how important that is in immunity. So that's just an example of how much you learn. Here we're learning that COVID is a slow mutator, but it is mutating. And will the disease be worse? Will it be better? Will it be more infectious? Those are things that are going to, we're going to have to keep a close eye on going forward. And the second thing I want to say, uh, thank you, Allison, for bringing up the public health issues. Uh, one thing that I think we've done exceptionally badly with this pandemic is we have not communicated information well to the public. There have been many different voices. There's been no consistent message. And that makes it extremely hard for people to understand what they should do. And it's easy to stray away from something you might not wanna do. So probably that's the thing I learned, have learned most from this pandemic so far is the, the importance of clear communication um, to, to all people who are involved. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with physician Rayellen Cavey and her daughter, who's a professor of history, Allison Cavey, and they have a new book out called Viral Pandemic from Smallpox to COVID-19. So your first chapter is about smallpox, and you start with a reminder of the anthrax attacks that happened right after September 11, 2001, uh, where 22 people were infected and five died after in contact with anthrax that was sent through the mail. What connection do you see between anthrax and smallpox? It's because smallpox is considered one of the number one potential bioterrorist weapons. And um, learning that was news to me. And uh, the anthrax attacks were the closest thing we have had to a bioterrorist attack here in the United States. So. Um, that whole section goes on beyond the anthrax attacks to talk about how um, we as a nation have a whole reserve for dealing with bioterrorism. And smallpox is in the top four of, of the agents there. And smallpox, correct me if I'm wrong, but that had been a threat for centuries before the vaccine was developed, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, it, it's been, it was considered the scourge of for many, many centuries. Allison can speak to that better than I. Um, before the campaign to eradicate it, which you know was actually just just occurred in the in the 1970s. So it was a really a, a, a problem all over the world up until the the um, extermination campaign. Well, your book points out that emerging infectious diseases since 1940. 60% of them are what is known as zoonotic. Maybe I'm saying that incorrectly. No. Um, can you tell us what that is and why it's worrisome? Well, I, I think it reflects the other major thing I learned uh, in writing the book, and that is how 
important global interconnectedness is in the emergence of all of these pandemics. And um, when we talk about animals living closer to humans, we're talking about the explosion in global population. We're talking about people living closer and closer to animals, to the natural habitats of animals, and therefore viruses that arise in animals have the opportunity to jump over and infect humans. And when they say 60% of rows in uh, animals, it's actually since the year 2000, all of the, the pandemics we have had have been viruses that jumped from animals to humans. Are you talking about domestic animals, dogs and cats? Or are you talking about farm animals? No, almost always they're wild animals um, who come in contact with people through an unusual circumstance. For example, Ebola is, uh, is carried by bats. They're the natural reservoir for the virus. Um, but people come in contact with, with that if, they're, if they have, have contact with a bat. That's not so common. But if hunters who have, uh, have, have killed an animal that was in contact with a bat, that the virus can be transferred at the time the animal is butchered if the um, hunter has the smallest cut in his skin. Ebola is probably the most um, infectious virus we have. It, if you if just the smallest amount of virus will cause infection. So just a tiny cut in the skin or, you know, Ebola workers, people who are taking care of sick patients, very easy for them to become infected it's through minor, minor skin abrasions through their eyes, anything, any contact with the virus will, will infect you. Wow. Well, it's a very interesting book. Before we wrap up, though, let me ask each of you, how do you envision, based on the research that you've spent looking into, um, you know, viral pandemics, how do you envision the current pandemic ending and how soon? Allison? I think there are three vaccinations now that are looking very promising. They're coming through trials with very high success rates. And those have been really rigorous trials. Nobody is suggesting that the clinical trials have not been significantly rigorous. So my hope is that by the spring, we should have sufficient doses of that to begin a very strong international vaccination campaign. My concern is that in America in particular, but throughout the world, there are concerns mostly unfounded about the safety of vaccines. And so my hope is that this new administration in America will join forces with international health organizations to promote vaccination as a public health and personal health effort so that people will adopt this simple, helpful, safe strategy for protecting themselves against this disease and every disease. I'm so concerned. I actually teach a whole class on vaccination um, and why it's so important. And my students are sometimes coming in with an anti-vaccination approach. And ho hopefully by the time they finish the class, they understand the science enough behind the vaccination campaigns to know why it's so important to vaccinate themselves and their children. Um, in terms of timeline, I guess I'm a little bit cautious. I know uh, people are talking about maybe April or May. I'm thinking a full year from now before we see this fully controlled just because of adoption rates and public health behaviors. So I would hope that by October or November of 2021, this will no longer be the worldwide epidemic. That doesn't mean I don't think there will be another one. And my hope is that people will be pro-public health. They'll be educated by this epidemic. My concern is that people, especially in this country, seem to think of independence as a means of expressing their political opinion in a public health way. And public health should not be a political football. It's so important that we contribute to the health of the country and the world by cooperating, by playing nicely together so that we can actually all go outside and play nicely together again, um, preferably before I think that will be likely. <laughs> so Ray Ellen, you think also the vaccine is the key to wrapping this up? Yeah, I think a combination of people getting infected so we are developing an immune population naturally, slowly, but steadily, and then people getting in, uh, vaccinated eventually will reach a point where there aren't any, um, there aren't enough people who have no protection against this virus for it to survive. Viruses can't live without a host. So if, our, if we have too many people who are immune, 
the virus will die out, and that's our hope. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Ray Ellen Cavey and Dr. Allison Cavey, authors of Viral Pandemics from Smallpox to COVID-19. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the promise of retinal regeneration. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from a visiting professor about the progress being made in the research of eye disease. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Abigail Hackham, a professor of ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She's in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate, and she made time to do this podcast. So welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Hackham. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, your lab focuses on research of new cures for diseases and injuries to the retina. And before I ask you to tell us more, can you describe where the retina is, what it does? Sure. So the retina is at the back of the eye, and it's essential for vision. So if you think about it as a camera, the retina will be the film that uh, receives the light and allows us to see. Of course, it works with the brain in order to give us the images that we perceive. So is it part of the eye or is it part of the nervous system? Both, actually. Oh, both. Okay. Yes, it's, uh, the retina is an offshoot of the brain. So a lot of the things that can go wrong in the brain can also go wrong in the retina. So some people, including ourselves, study the retina to actually understand how the brain works. So what are the problems or the diseases that affect this part of the eye that your lab is involved in researching? So there's a family of diseases called retinal degenerations, and these are diseases that affect the nerve cells called photoreceptors, and they lead to loss of vision and oftentimes um, complete blindness. So they're quite serious diseases and quite common, in fact. So with things like macular degeneration, macular, is that one of them? Yes, okay. macular degeneration is one of them, and that affects around the third of the population over the age of 65. Wow. Now, are these um, inherited diseases, or are they diseases that develop with age? Right. Also both. So some of these diseases, um, an example would be um, a congenital night blindness or retinitis pigmentosa, those are inherited, and those would be evident in children. Some of the other diseases, such as macular degeneration, is age-associated. Now, if the retina is damaged by one of these diseases, is it able to regenerate? Or so, grow back? Right. So only if you're a fish or a newt to a salamander. In humans and mammals in general, unfortunately, it cannot grow back on its own. And so what we're trying to do is stimulate um, the body's ability to regrow or to protect a retina. So it doesn't naturally, it can't naturally it on its own. Not naturally, unfortunately. Um, you mentioned three different animals, newt, or what, how did we discover that they had the ability to regenerate? Has that right. been known for a while? It's been known for a while, um, maybe a serendipity, you know, people were studying those animals for a long time, it was an observation that they made, and now, of course, understanding how other animals uh, regenerate, perhaps we can learn from that and apply it to our own research. In these animal models, when the retina regenerates, is it as good as the original retina? Um, in many cases, it is, yes. So there's hope that the, maybe we would hope. be able to... Yes. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, what approaches is your lab investigating? So one of the primary approaches is to um, use a type of growth factor that we know is important in the development of the eye in the embryo, and we're trying to repurpose that in the adult. And so we're trying to see, you know, since it works to tell the retina to become a retina in the first place, maybe it can do it after injury. So that's a major focus of ours. Interesting. Have you found 
that I mean, you it, must have some promise yes, if you're going yes, down that pathway. Yeah, but. for sure. So it does seem to help. So we can, um, at least in an animal model, we can regrow an optic nerve, which is very exciting. Um, now our, our biggest focus is can we enhance that regrowth so that it can make connections with the brain? Because that's ultimately what we need, right? So if it's only the retina regrowing, it's not as helpful if it can't communicate with the brain. So optic nerve, is that how the retina connect, connects to the brain? the brain? yes. Okay, so that's yeah. a very important nerve. Yes, to... definitely. Okay. Um, what other approaches have you looked into? So we have a really interesting um, research project where we're looking at different dietary interventions. And and diet is as nice as a, a an aid or a supplement to pharmaceuticals, you know, because people can easily change their diet, well, hopefully easily, more easily than taking a pill. And so we've actually found that um, a diet that was supplemented with these uh, free, f- freeze-dried grape powder was able to protect the retina completely in an animal model of photoreceptor degeneration. So this was a, a model of one of these inherited diseases. So freeze-dried grape powder, powder? grape, the fruit? The fruit. So it's a mixture of red and black and white grapes, stems and seeds, freeze-dried, biochemically defined. And we supplemented the animal's diet with that, and they had complete retinal protection. So very exciting. So I eat a lot of grapes, based (laughs) on my research. So what made you think grapes would have any sort of powerful... Yeah, Yeah. so there's a lot of literature about grapes and cardiovascular health. So we know the story about red wine. Resveratrol, right? Yes, resveratrol, exactly. And so resveratrol is only one component of grapes. There's a lot of different components. They're called uh, phytochemicals, which are basically um, compounds within plants. And they have beneficial properties. They've been shown to be anti-inflammatory or antioxidants, all these type of things. And so when they're all together in the grape powder, we're seeing a benefit. Whereas individual chemicals in isolation doesn't seem to work as well. Wow, well, that is interesting. So once you've shown this in an animal, uh, then you've also got to take the next step to work on it in humans, right? In humans, exactly, yeah. So we're trying to um, determine what would be the optimal dose and and all those type of considerations. In the animals, it was equivalent to two and a half servings of grapes, which and the serving is three quarters of a cup. So, you know, it's not an unreasonable amount of grapes, Mm -hmm. but that was in the animal. So translating that to humans, we'd have to really work that out. But, but, but I think grapes are easy to eat and nutritious. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Abigail Hackham from the University of Miami. She's a scientist who focuses on genetics and ophthalmology, and she's visiting Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate on retinal regeneration. So your lab is also looking at inflammation is that correct yes yes. so what does that have to do with regeneration or repair of the retina yeah so inflammation is getting a lot of attention in the scientific community these days and we know a whole host of diseases have links to inflammation ranging from alzheimer's disease to even autism to retinal degenerations and it turns out that inflammation can have some beneficial effects as well as um, negative effects to the eye. So what we're trying to do is enhance the beneficial effects and suppress the more toxic negative effects. So it might have the effect of helping a retina stay healthy? Yes, yes. So that's our goal. And in fact, what we've found is that we can add a a very um, low-dose anti-inflammatory drug, and it can boost these beneficial inflammatory cells. Interesting. So you mentioned the grapes, too, but I'm just wondering, how would regeneration help people who've already lost their vision? Or would it? Would you would we ever do you ever foresee that we would get to a point where a person who's lost their vision through detachment or a disease would have some remedy for that? Right, right. So ideally, um, we would be able to help a patient early in the degenerative process. And, and that's why in a 
getting eye exams on the regular basis and doing these type of screenings, which are so important to see any early stages, especially if you have a pre-existing condition like diabetes, for example. In terms of a later stage disease process, um, the field is now moving into replacement. And so this would be replacement of um, new cells that can actually be inserted back into the eye. It's all experimental um, at this stage or even an artificial retina, which is uh, an electrode array. And some of these are in use, um, you know, not highly effective yet, but a huge push to make these work better. Definitely being looked at. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know you also explore genetics, so I'd like to ask you about the role you think gene therapy may play in preventing or or curing diseases or injuries. Yeah, so, I mean, the forefront of a lot of this research is genetics, and so... In my lab, we do some gene therapy in the animals, um, but more recent data in um, the clinical setting, people have been using small non-pathogenic viruses to deliver genes to replace the genes that are mutated or absent in patients. And the first results are coming out. They're recently reported from a group in um, Pennsylvania in collaboration with other other institutions, and there's a beneficial effect on some of these patients, which is very exciting. So you first have to find out if uh, if they've got a vision deficiency, if, yes. if there's a genetic exactly. reason for it. Exactly. And now that we know the whole human genome has been completely sequenced, um, so it's not hugely complicated to identify the genetic defect these days. It used to be more challenging. Now it's cheaper and faster to find that out. So how long do you think uh, some of the work that you're doing in the lab, how long would it take before it is ready for patient use? So that's a good question. It's a question that I hear a lot. (laughs) I get that a lot. And I ask myself the same question. So something like the grapes. So that's an immediate benefit. You know, we haven't done a clinical study for that, but it's something that it's a dietary intervention. And grapes are not going to hurt you. Not unless you're diabetic or allergic, right? So in general, for the average person, grapes will not hurt you. For a more molecular therapeutic, um, it takes longer. So the average length of time that's usually stated is 15 years. And if you think about it, it's basically the amount of time is because of safety concerns. So we need to test it in multiple animal models and then do what's called a phase one clinical trial and a phase two clinical trial, phase three. And those phases are for looking at small patient populations and testing safety and then efficacy. So So to make sure that it works, number one, but then that it's not doing other sorts of damage or something. Exactly. One of the advantages for working in the eye is that the system is set up very nicely for clinical trials. So oftentimes we treat one eye and leave the other eye untreated. And so we can see if, there's, if the treatment actually is causing further damage or having a protective effect or no effect. So we just compare to the fellow eye. Um, another case is that the delivery of drugs to the eye is much easier than really for most anything else. Eye drops, as an example. Oh. It's really easy, um, non-invasive way to deliver drugs. So it's a little bit faster to bring drugs to treatment um, in the eye, but it still takes a long time. And, you know, if you have a disease like this, you know, you want things to happen faster, of course. But of course. We're working as hard as we can. And in the meantime, grapes, eating grapes may help keep your retina healthy. Right, yes. Well, good yes. to know. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Abigail Hackam, a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Miami's Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. I love how poetry can show us something similar from two very opposite directions. Anthony Cordasco, he's a poet of deep emotion, as you will hear in this poem, Hammers. I used to forge steel 
It spoke to me, a visual language, black heat, cherry red, blinding white welding, and dusted with flux, blazing like a sparkler from fire pot to anvil, scarfed pieces bonding under rapid hammer blows. I used to raise silver. It warmed me, a dull red annealing glow, quenched, pickled, ready for the hammers, locking, embossing, raising, sinking, flat sheet crimped, forming hollowware up, rough texture yielding to planished sheen under rapid hammer blows. I used to grow a garden. It nourished me, sweet 100 cherry, Nebraska wedding orange, Cherokee purple tomatoes, spreading bright green arms tied with bailing twine in a figure eight. I saw my father do to homemade steaks driven deep under rapid hammer blows. I used to feel a purpose. It encouraged me, spreading bright green arms of hope, a dull red annealing glow, feeding dreams, blinding white, passion like a sparkler, from fire pot to anvil, aging like I saw my father do, driven deep under the weight of living life, hounded out under rapid hammer blows. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new treatment option for atrial fibrillation. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm -hmm.